Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. The chanting you just heard was from a massive illegal demonstration in Athens earlier this week. Solidarity protests have roiled Greece as Dimitris Kofotinas, an anti-imperialist political prisoner, enters his second full month on hunger strike. He was a combatant member of N17, a Greek urban guerrilla group named after November 17, 1973, when the fascist military junta massacred revolting university students. N17 formed as the junta collapsed and was known for attacks against military torturers, major industrialists, and American interests. Kovatinas has been serving a life sentence since 2002 when N17 laid down its arms and has been recently transferred away from Korydalos prison in Athens. Per his legal rights, he is demanding a return to Korydalos to be close to friends and family. The Greek state began force-feeding him on February 23rd in order to prevent either his victory or his death. If he dies, he'll become the first political prisoner to die on hunger strike in Europe since 1981 when the UK killed Bobby Sands and other IRA prisoners. The ruling right-wing New Democracy Party has viciously attacked solidarity demonstrations, but despite extreme police violence, thousands of people continue to protest in recognition that if Kofotinas dies, it will set a precedent that the Greek state can dispense with all prisoners' minimal legal rights. Additionally, banks, ATMs, and police cars have been set on fire in claimed solidarity actions, and offices belonging to the Greek state have been occupied in Athens and in Germany. March 6th is a global day of solidarity with Kofotinas. And now we return to talking about grand juries and state repression. Recently, Steve Martinez, an indigenous and Chicano activist who participated in the protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline on the Standing Rock Reservation in 2016, was held on charges of civil contempt of court for his refusal to cooperate with a federal grand jury. In order to learn more about Steve's situation, Perilous Chronicle editor Ryan Fatika spoke with Lauren Regan, lead attorney and executive director of the Civil Liberties Defense Center in Oregon. Last week, she laid the groundwork of Steve's situation by explaining his role in the case of Sophia Wolanski. Lauren is representing Wolanski, a Standing Rock protester who's suing law enforcement for injuries she sustained during a protest on the Backwater Bridge at Standing Rock in 2016. Here they are. Steve basically drives this vehicle with Sophia and another person who's kind of like rendering aid to her and drives them off the bridge. And as he's driving, He is calling the BIA and an ambulance to meet them at the casino so that she can be attended by trauma medics, basically. And so he drives the car that ultimately is responsible for saving her life. They get to this ambulance. The BIA medics end up having to put a tourniquet on her arm. She's ultimately uh, taken in a helicopter to a trauma center in Minnesota and They are able to leave her arm attached to uh, the rest of her body, but even to this day, after dozens of surgeries trying to rebuild the arm, uh, she still really has very little use of of the arm. So, you know, a very, very serious permanent injury caused by law enforcement, and the only role that Steve had in it was literally in trying to save her life in, in driving this car. And as a result of that act of being a good Samaritan, he has now been facing two federal grand jury subpoenas. 
the second one, you know, like I mentioned, was for February 4th. And when he showed up that day, there were a number of legal procedural problems with this grand jury and the subpoena that he received for it. But this magistrate judge, you know, there's two kinds of federal judges, an Article Three judge and a magistrate judge. And certain types of court procedures can only be conducted by an Article Three judge, like trials are the most common example, unless the parties consent to letting a magistrate judge cover. And in these instances, you know, normally it is an Article Three judge that conducts a potential contempt of court hearing along these lines. But in this case, Steve only had a magistrate judge. And the magistrate judge basically rushed through a proceeding. Um, you're supposed to be able to have a public contempt hearing. The public was not allowed into this hearing. And she quickly finds him in contempt of court. And he is ushered off to a jail in Bismarck. And so to put a Native American person with other health vulnerabilities into a jail for civil contempt of court for refusing to testify to a grand jury that has a total illegitimate purpose to begin with is incredibly problematic. And the reason I say that it's like illegitimate is grand juries are only allowed to investigate federal crimes or in limited circumstances they can be convened in order to seek information about a fugitive from justice. They're not allowed to use a grand jury proceeding in order to do civil discovery. They're not allowed to use a grand jury to try to bolster their BS narrative that somehow Sophia is responsible for her own injuries, um, which is some of the drivel that the feds and the defendants in the case are using to try to justify the, you know, almost deadly police misconduct that occurred on November 21st, the, the mm -hmm. early morning hours of the 21st. And just to be more specific, the government is alleging that protesters on the bridge that night were using what they're calling improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, constructed from propane cylinders. And so they're alleging that Sophia was not shot by a flashbang or other police munition, but that an IED exploded, and that's what caused her injuries. And so the FBI, if I understand correctly, came to the hospital where Sophia was being treated, and they seized some shrapnel that had been removed by doctors from her arm. And so that shrapnel is either part of a munition that law enforcement are known to use, or it's part of a propane cylinder, but they're refusing to say what it is or at least any information about it. Is that correct? That is correct. You know, in February of 2018, we filed a federal lawsuit against the FBI trying to force them to either turn over that piece of shrapnel to our experts, our forensic experts, um, which is in a big, you know, famous lab in Michigan, or they were supposed to use their forensic experts and test this piece of shrapnel and provide the report, you know, one way or the other. And they have adamantly refused for this entire time period. In fact, you know, really recently, we again requested that we be able to test the shrapnel or see their test results of the shrapnel, and they're continuing to refuse. In one of the recent discovery orders, the federal judge in Sophia's case basically agreed that this, the test results of this piece of shrapnel 
could conclusively determine the outcome of this civil case. You know, like you said, if it's a propane canister, then it would be a difficult argument to establish that it was shot by law enforcement behind the barricade. If it is anything but this Coleman propane canister, then, you know, the government has an uphill battle. Also, just note that Sophia's injuries are in no way consistent with something that would have had flames or heat. Um, you know, her medical records and the other evidence basically demonstrates that, like, if a propane canister had exploded, she'd probably be dead right now. But she would also have burns, that a propane canister would have heat and flame involved in it. And there were no injuries um, to her clothing or to her body that would be consistent with that. So it does seem much more like a munition that basically shattered, and pieces of it actually went through her arm and out the other side. Although the government claims that, you know, after the day of the 21st, you know, the, the cops claimed that they were able to find this propane canister, you know, used propane canister on the bridge, they apparently were unable to find these fragments of metal with flesh hanging from them that would have been on the bridge as well. So mm -hmm. um, interesting investigative techniques being, uh, being used in that circumstance. And so we don't know exactly why this grand jury is being conducted because these are shadowy, secretive proceedings. Lawyers are not allowed to be in the room with their clients during the procedures. Judges aren't even present. But it appears that the grand jury is being convened to investigate this incident on the bridge and ostensibly they're trying to get some information from Steve. Or perhaps, like some many grand juries are, it's just a fishing expedition in which they're casting around, hoping to see if they can get any information that they can use to do further damage to this movement or to target any other activists. Yeah, I mean, my understanding from other attorneys, you know, working on the case is that they were flat out told that the grand jury was investigating Sophia. You know, at one point they tried to say that they couldn't find Steve to serve him with a subpoena, even though he's lived in the same location in Bismarck right under their noses for many years openly, you know, with a residence address, with a job, et cetera, et cetera. There's like a couple of points to kind of circle around to. You know, number one, Steve, like a long, long history of both indigenous and political activists, have a culture and moral compass that strongly instructs that you do not cooperate with grand jury witch hunts like this. And so Steve stands in a long line of movement heroes that have resisted grand juries in the past. Steve has done nothing wrong. Steve has not been charged with a crime, but he is you know, standing up on behalf of the movement and water protectors, et cetera, et cetera, which is important not only for himself, but for the movement as a whole. Steve was first grand jury subpoenaed, you know, a couple of years ago. Nothing new has happened between then and now. They haven't tested the shrapnel. There hasn't been any kind of, like, informants that we know of. Like, the only thing that has changed between the first time he was subpoenaed and now the second time is that Sophia's civil lawsuit against them uh, has been given the green light to move forward. The other thing that I guess, you know, I would say, like, history repeats itself. And as I have, 
worked up this case over the years with many other lawyers and, and co-counsel and you know awesome movement organizers, I keep remembering the case of Judy Berry. Um, and Judy Berry was a forest defender from Northern California who kind of bridged the gap between forest activism and labor activism. And back in the 90s, she was driving with another activist to a rally that she was going to be performing at when her car blew up. Uh, there had been a car bomb, a pipe bomb, planted under the driver's seat of her car, and she was gravely injured. And uh, within minutes, FBI and other law enforcement swept in and started making noise that she blew herself up, that she had been like carrying this bomb uh, and it went off and she blew it up. Fast forward 10 years later, you know, she has filed a lawsuit against the FBI and Oakland police. Uh, she ends up getting cancer and ultimately dies while the case is still making its way through. But they actually go to trial against the FBI and Oakland Police Department. And ultimately, it ends up that the two law enforcement agencies are colluding with each other to basically cover up the fact that they, in fact, are responsible for the bomb under her seat. And so we've seen, wow. you know, historically, activists, especially activist women, being blamed for their injuries caused by the state and the FBI working with local law enforcement to cover up those crimes. So Steve's case is not the only case that has come out of the Standing Rock protest. There's been years now of legal battles and all sorts of repressive tactics that law enforcement has used to respond to, to shut down the, the movement that emerged in response to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, you've been involved in much of those efforts. Can you help us understand better what kind of tactics law enforcement used there and what the outcome of some of those cases have been? Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's actually kind of timely and important to be having these conversations as things in Minnesota begin to also heat up. Because like I just said, like history does repeat itself, and especially with regard to the fossil fuel industry, they have a limited playbook that they continue to repeat over and over again. And so what happened in Standing Rock is important for activists to kind of learn and consider so that we do not repeat the same situations the next time around and that we can be better prepared and more aware to strategically dance around the obstacles that we know the state will once again put in our way. And you know, and when I use the the word the state, you know, I am referring to both government, including law enforcement, but also corporations, especially fossil fuel corporations. And so with Standing Rock, the whole playbook of standard activist repression was present. Every social justice movement has faced repression and will face repression. Repression is nothing new. It is expected that when we challenge the status quo, when we push against capitalism and like the profiteering mechanisms of the state, that they're going to come at us with everything they've got. And they've got quite an arsenal to fight back against us. You know, we have people power, you know, we have the mass movement, we have passion and commitment and all of those good things, and they have things like guns and prisons and, you know, that whole litany of stuff. 
large amounts of money were invested in surveillance, both infiltrators as well as the ability to spy. We know that a huge amount of money was put into trying to map the movement, trying to study and psychologically profile this movement. How do you pick targets? What's the leadership structure? What's the funding structure? You know, all of those things our adversaries are keenly studying and aware of. And so, like, when people tell me, like, oh, it's okay for me to put all this crap on Facebook, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong, you know, what they don't recognize is that a lot of that information is not necessarily relevant to whether you committed a crime or whether you're going to be prosecuted or you're going to go to jail, but it is being sucked up and used by our adversaries to make our jobs harder as movement activists. The next thing we saw is that hundreds and hundreds of water protectors were falsely arrested. Ultimately, their charges dismissed, but they were still arrested and they went to jail. And often, with the caravans of cars, their vehicles would also be impounded at that time. There was a money suck that was happening there because, you know, at Standing Rock, every water protector that was arrested was cash bailed out, and the state was able to keep a percentage of all of that bail, even for the charges that were dismissed and that were literally had no lawful basis to even, you know, result in arrest to begin with. So they made a ton of money off of falsely arresting water protectors. If people had not been cash bailed out, which obviously some people do need to be cash bailed out for varying reasons, but if they hadn't been cash bailed out and if solidarity tactics had been used, the jails would not have been able to hold everyone. Eventually, people may have been released on their own recognizance and the state wouldn't have profited off of those false arrests in that same way. The state would have had to make some charging decisions, et cetera, et cetera. The Water Protector Legal Collective on their website has sort of like the statistics of the outcomes of all of those cases, it was a very, very small fraction of the total number of arrests that actually resulted in convictions after trials. A very small handful of, I think, almost entirely indigenous water protectors were prosecuted at the federal level for economic sabotage and you know, ultimately took plea bargains and, and were convicted of those crimes. And we're talking, you know, about Red Fawn Fallis, the only woman indigenous water protector. She basically ends up taking a deal to being a felon in possession of a firearm. And the firearm was owned by this person that she thought was her boyfriend, but actually was an FBI agent posing as her boyfriend. The other individuals that had federal charges were basically charged with economic sabotage for, you know, using arson as a tactic to damage Dakota Access Pipeline property in desperate attempts to try and stop that pipeline from doing irreparable harm. And, of course, we all know now that the federal civil courts have ruled that the pipeline was, in fact, illegal. It should never have actually been, you know, constructed, but there's no way to take back the damage and harm that this illegal corporation has caused not only to the landscape and to the environment and to the climate, but also to these extremely valuable sacred sites, graves, cultural resources, et cetera, et cetera. We also had, you know, the form of state repression that is excessive force and police violence. Dozens of nonviolent water protectors were indiscriminately 
permanently and seriously injured as a result of police violence being used against them for the exercise of their constitutional rights. Yeah, you've been doing anti-repression, movement defense lawyering for a long time now, and you obviously have a lot of this history in your mind. Um, <laughs> let's bring the discussion up to the present moment. This summer, there was nationwide protests, huge historic protests and uprisings, and that wave of rebellion has resulted now in this winter and in the fall in this huge wave of repression. Do you have a sense of how the current climate of repression compares to other moments in history that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is still unfolding, and there are a lot of people, you know, doing really amazing analysis as, like, statistics and data are coming out more and more. But what I would say, you know, as a member of the Mass Defense Committee in the U.S., you know, who's kind of looking at this these nationwide uh, trends. That's the Mass Defense Committee with the National Lawyers Guild? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a couple of things that I would observe, at least at this point, is number one, the use of curfews to shut down protest. Pretty unprecedented. You know, we don't see that in a lot of like white-led um, movements very often. Number two, we saw overt police brutality and excessive force used against protesters. And my personal belief is that is largely in part because those particular protesters were A, of color, and B, chanting things like ACAB, you know, where like these quote-unquote professional police officers completely lost all professionalism and retaliated against the speech, the content of the protest, rather than, you know, responding to actual things that would justify that level of use of force. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing that I would say that is pretty unprecedented in my more than two decades of defending activists around the country is the use of these felony riot charges. You know, I think I could count on one hand in the last 20 years activists that were charged with riot that I have defended. Uh, you know, and that's thousands and thousands of cases at this point. Uh, but now we have... There are hundreds around the country or more of people facing these felony riot charges. And, you know, the definition of riot is like three or more or five or more people who are engaged in tumultuous or, quote, unquote, violent conduct. And that happens all the time in activist land where like three or five or more people are doing some kind of mass action that mm -hmm. could be described as tumultuous. Um, and or results in property damage, but they are not charged with riot. But now we have this like black or POC-led movement that's engaged in very similar tactics that we saw, you know, in the WTO or in like other anti-capitalist actions or movements, and they were not charged with those crimes. So it's interesting that the state and the police are basically proving our point that the police and the justice system as a whole suffer from overt systemic racism and the disparate impacts on activists of color compared to non-people of color or white-led movements has been incredibly obvious and overt. It's almost like they're like proving our point for us and yet they are so tone deaf they don't actually realize what that looks like to the rest of us. 
So let's circle back around to Steve Martinez. He's sitting in jail right now in Bismarck, North Dakota. Is there an end in sight? How long is he going to be held? Well, technically, um, a contemnor, a person who is refusing to testify to a grand jury, holds the keys to their jail cell, meaning at any time they could say, okay, I'll testify, and they would be released from civil contempt of court, and they would be brought to the grand jury room, and once they testified, they could go home. I have no indication that Steve Martinez is going to cooperate with this grand jury. And so in that alternative, um, you know, number one, his lawyers are going to appeal, like I mentioned, all of the uh, unusual shenanigans that landed him in jail to begin with. Number two, there's something called a grumbles motion, uh, which basically, you know, the purpose of civil contempt is to coerce you into testifying. And if you can prove that you will not be coerced, that instead of being coercive, your confinement is punitive or punishment, then you should be released from civil contempt of court, and that's called a grumbles motion. And I would expect sooner or later that kind of motion would be made on Steve's behalf, that he's mm -hmm. not going to testify, and so it's not coercive, it's punitive, and he should be purged from his civil contempt. How do you go about proving such a thing? Well, normally you have to sit in jail for a while, you know, to basically establish that jail is not going to scare you into testifying. Um, and then sometimes, uh, you know, your community will testify and say, like, I know that this person has very strongly held ethical beliefs and I don't believe that they will ever testify. We can also attempt to say that the purposes of the grand jury itself are illegitimate and he should be purged because the grand jury itself is not lawful. Uh, that could be a basis. And then finally, the, the federal grand juries have a maximum term of 18 months. And unfortunately, it's my understanding that this particular federal grand jury had been convened shortly before Steve was brought before it. So there are still, you know, like 16 months left to go in this grand jury term, meaning that he wow. could serve 16 or 17 months in jail for doing nothing illegal, for doing nothing wrong. He could sit in a prison cell for doing nothing other than refusing to participate in this illegitimate witch hunt of a federal grand jury. The intent of state repression is to scare the people into submission. And so if you become so afraid that you sit on the couch and click the like button and do nothing more about all of the problems in our world right now, then the state wins without even having to do anything. Paranoia is two steps behind and awareness is two steps ahead. And one of the best ways to combat state repression is by proving to the state that their tactics will not silence us, will not make us inactive, that it's not an effective way for them to try and control society or protect the profits of corporations. So I would just encourage people to figure out what is the way that they can contribute to a better planet, a better society, and then do it, you know, whether that's feeding people or doing free legal work or, um, you know, standing on a pipeline route, you know, in resistance. There are so many different ways to contribute. You don't have to get arrested in order to be an effective activist, but you do need to be doing something right now because, you know, otherwise it may be too late.
We mentioned last week that Steve was released shortly after that interview was recorded. However, on March 3rd, Steve was taken back into custody and is being fined $50 for every day he refuses to collaborate. Red Fawn Fallis, who was imprisoned for her participation in the Standing Rock blockades, has finally completed her sentence today, March 5th, and her ankle monitor has been removed. Thank you to Ryan Fatika and Lauren Regan for their time and work on this. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com, cldc.org, and you can find more information and a link to Steve Martinez's fundraiser all at our new website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.